Blog Talk Radio. From the studio in Sun City, Arizona Boomer Radio presents Wealth DNA with Ron the Ronald Naraki. Wealth DNA gives you insights and methods for increasing your net worth. Ron's experience dealing with local and international markets give him insights that can be valuable to any investor. Now here's the host of the show, Ron Naraki. Hello and welcome. We here at the Wealth DNA Radio Show are honored that you're joining us today and want to wish you a happy anniversary. We're especially glad if you're joining us live and live in the U.S., outside of Arizona or Hawaii. Now, why do I say that? Because we didn't forewarn you that you'd be changing your clocks the day before the show. We didn't even check the daylight savings time schedule until this weekend, and thus didn't realize that 48 states in the U.S. would be changing their clocks so early. For that matter, I didn't even remember a single year where clocks were changed so early in March. Now, since our team is based in Arizona, nobody talks about time change here, and we don't hear about it on the local radio or read about it in the local newspaper like in other parts of the country. Nonetheless, our apologies for forgetting to mention it during the last few shows. Many years ago, I remember visiting Arizona for a few weeks and then returning to Philadelphia on a weekend when the clocks were changed. Since I didn't hear about it while I was in Arizona, nor did they mention on the flight, I arrived at my meeting the next morning, an hour late. While I'm uh, mentioning that, I might as well forewarn our European listeners that as of our first show in April, so we still have a little while to go, you'll be tuning in an hour later. I guess it would be much uh, to ask the uh, global gurus of daylight saving that they could reach some agreement on a logical day, ideally the same one around the world. Well, whether you're listening to the live show or you're listening to the archive of the show, I'm sure you'll be glad you joined us. Our topic today is the Bulls 5th anniversary. We certainly hope you have a glass of champagne or at least your favorite beverage for this time of day, whether it's coffee or wine, so that we can toast this momentous occasion. I'm sure you realize there are three animals we typically associate with the financial markets. Certainly the best known is the bull, associated with markets rising. Certainly the best, uh, uh, you know, raging bull markets everybody loves, and we have had one since March 9th, 2009, exactly five years ago. Now, incidentally, the U.S. housing market bottomed one month later on April 9th, We'll certainly talk about residential real estate as well. Now, the second animal is the bear, which indicates that many buyers are hibernating and thus markets are declining. Far fewer investors, other than our regular listeners, know about the third animal associated with the financial markets. Interestingly, that third animal is the least known but most prevalent. What is it? Of course, it's the sheep. The sheep signifies the majority of investors who merely follow the crowd. They don't know which way the market's going to go. They don't listen to the show. And because they follow the crowd, they're very unlikely to ever become wealthy. The crowd, after all, underperforms the market, doesn't understand the fundamentals of investing, and gets overly confident during periods like the last five years. You see, they've been whether they picked equities or uh, been investing in real estate, they only picked winning investments for the last five years. Their home is appreciating, so they must feel like investing geniuses. That won't last. Now, for this special anniversary celebration, we'll make the show extra special. First, we've prepared a number of charts for you to review as you listen. And what uh, you'll be able to get the link to that either from wealthdna.us and right under our show announcement, you'll find a link. Or you can look in the chat window right below the radio player. And in just one second, if everything works planned, yep, there it goes. So in the chat window, I have just sent out the link that will take you to those slides. You've got to love this technology. Now, in addition, I'll share my views and ask our special guest, who's Russ Wiles, to share his. I have no idea whether he'll agree or disagree with my point of view, although 
since he's a returning guest, I'm certain, absolutely certain, he'll share some valuable insights. He always does. We have so much good information to cover that I'd like to jump right in after giving you a excuse me, quick snapshot of the equity markets this morning. Today is March 10th, 2014. It's 9.05 in Arizona, 12.05 noon on the uh, East Coast, and 17.05 in continental Europe. It's the only day I ever like it. It's the fifth anniversary, after all, so we'll do everything possible to make it a great one. You're listening to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. The show airs every second and fourth Monday at 9 a.m. in Arizona. And we don't change our clocks here, by the way. We'd like to thank our sponsor today, BI Solutions Corp., and to extend a special thanks to J.P. Morgan Asset Management for preparing the great charts we'll be using during this show. Now, I certainly hope you can join us each time we air, but if you miss a show, like maybe you missed some of the earlier ones with Russ Wiles, you can find them on the archives. Just go to www.wealthdna.us, where we list each of the shows, both upcoming and archived. We welcome your comments and questions during the show. I recommend you use the chat window below the radio player since we're covering a lot of information. Or if you call in, our producer can share those uh, questions or comments with us. That call in number 917-388-4162. And it's also shown at the top of the screen. Now, the U.S. equity markets, which had five more record high closes since our last show, are off to a negative start. Asia was down between 1% and 3%, pretty dramatic. Europe will close soon, is also down, and Brazil is down almost 1.5%. Our special guest today, as I mentioned, is Russ Wiles. He's the best first personal finance writer at the Arizona Republic, as well as azcentral.com. He is the co-author of two investing books, including How Mutual Funds Work. Russ earned a master's degree in journalism, obviously, uh, related to his current role. And he earned that at Columbia University and an MBA at California State University, Northridge. He has his bachelor's degree in history, and most importantly, he's an occasional guest on the Wealth DNA radio show. Let's give a warm radio welcome to Russ Wiles. Welcome back, Russ, and thank you for joining us today. Good morning, Ron. I have to start by asking you, were you aware that other parts of the U.S. were changing their clocks this weekend? I was, but I agree with you that it seemed to be awful early. It seems to be, yeah. I remember it being more like uh, late April or, or late March or early April in the past. But Correct. I was It always seemed to be after spring starts. So anyway, we, we seem to yeah. be early, just like the warm weather here lately. Uh, but I gave a brief overview of background. How many of our listeners, uh, you know, many of our, excuse me, many of our listeners know you from prior shows and, of course, from your articles. But for some of our newer listeners, how do you introduce yourself at a cocktail party? Uh, basically, the, as the uh, personal finance writer at the Arizona Republic, which is one of the nation's uh, 12 or 13 largest daily newspapers. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, increasingly, our website, uh, azcentral.com, is where we're portraying more of our material these days. I mean, uh, uh, we're in the digital age now, and uh, we're, uh, we're writing primarily now for online and almost secondarily now for uh, the traditional newspaper. But, you, you know... We, we have our information in both, azcentral.com or the Arizona Republic, and uh, certainly easy to uh, get on azcentral.com, and, and most of my material stories would be in the money section, mm-hmm. and we also have, uh, it's easy to, to, to Google my name and the Arizona Republic, AZ Central, uh, for prior articles. Okay, excellent. Now, we should have our listeners turn to the uh, first slide in the package that we prepared that slate is slide, by the way, and if you all of the times I'll use a reference number, which is in the upper right corner of the slide. So these are the actual numbers used by J.P. Morgan in their booklet, and we'll be starting with slide number four. By the way, that's the S&P 500 index at uh, various inflection points. But I thought it was a great start, you know, chart to start our conversation because when I look back to March of 2009, five years ago, people were asking me whether they should bail out of these financial markets while they still had some money left. On the other hand, I was 100% invested, 50% in stocks, 50% in uh, residential real estate, and even starting to question my own sanity, even though I've been investing for years, 
starting to wonder whether this whole first commandment of investing is right. Maybe the markets just keep coming down. But what, Russ, were you hearing from friends and readers back then? Oh, I think five years ago, definitely the the mood was uh, uh, anxious, if not panicky. Um, uh, People were tuned into the stock market, uh, watching the little red arrows uh, pointing us further down Mm -hmm. in terms of the Dow or the S&P 500, and I think there was a real concern that not only were we in a deep recession, which we were, but, you know, maybe the the powers that be uh, wouldn't be able to pull us out of it. And I, I just think that there was a lot of, uh, uh, concern, anxiety, people wondering if they would ever, you know, get back uh, to where they had been. And if they if they stick, stuck with it, they have returned to those earlier levels. But I, I remember one uh, anecdote, for example, of a, a colleague of mine coming up to me in the men's room at the Arizona Republic and saying, you know, I just can't take it anymore. I, I bailed out everything in my 401k plan and put it into money markets. And this was right around March 5th or March 6th. So it was right at the bottom, and that was the worst you know, thing this person Possible could have done. To do it. Exactly. So that's, exactly. the, that's the sort of fear that was gripping so many people out there five years ago. And it proves the old adage that night is darkest just before dawn. And it, well, they, but this time the, they were concerned that they're, you know, it was going to be pitch black for a long time. That's the problem. Correct, correct, that the sun might just not rise. Uh, now, before we dig in, let's share with our listeners how they contact you, because I don't know if you, the easiest is just to go to azcentral.com and, and Google your name, and then they find uh, uh, the articles you've written, or do you also take emails from readers? Oh, sure. Uh, Russ.Wiles, W-I-L-E-S, at Arizona Republic, all spelled out, ArizonaRepublic.com. I also have a Twitter handle, AZ Money News, that's Arizona Money News, azmoneynews.com or not .com, AZ Money News um, on Correct. Twitter. That's pretty easy to find. Okay. Yeah, and uh, hopefully you're getting back to being a little more active. On uh, Last time we were on the show, we hadn't seen you tw- uh, tweeting, I guess is the official term for, for whatever goes on on Twitter. But uh, hopefully you're getting a little more active, getting your articles out there. Much uh, more active over the last, like, four months, uh, in particular because uh, we've, we've got our marching orders that were, you know, primarily digital news uh, company now and and print is secondary interesting okay yeah now i'm starting to wonder how long this bull market can last now if we if we look at that chart uh you know you see that the last one turned out to be exactly five years long interesting it started on the ninth and it ended on the ninth happened to be october in that case uh, you're a historian. You you studied history in your in your bachelor's. I'm sure you've re- looked at some of the past cycles. How often do they last longer than five years? Um, as you as you correctly point out, uh, not often. But I would say that you know maybe uh, this time around is a little bit different. I hate to use that phrase, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but for the simple reason that the, the the prior bear market was the second worst in this last century, next to the Great Depression. I mean, we went down more than fifty percent. Mm-hmm. Um, so this recovery has had a lot farther to go. So in that sense, I'm not too focused on the the size or the length of the duration of the rally, mm-hmm. but check, checking for other things, you are you are correct that it is a bit long in the tooth, but uh, mm-hmm. who's to say it can't uh, you know go on for quite a bit longer. Yeah, and actually, before we leave that chart, that you know, you look back at the recent dips. Part of what was scary is it was dropping to levels that we had not seen uh, in the last few dips. So that you know, the the, the S and P 500 was actually lower than at the bottom of the prior one. So I think that's what scared a lot of people is you know we just hadn't seen that in some case, some cases people's entire investment you know lifetime. Uh, so uh, it definitely was scary. But let's have our listeners turn to the next slide. Just a matter of flipping to the next slide. It's actually labeled number. 50. 15. So obviously we're not going to go through every slide in, in J.P. Morgan's package because it's, it's uh, quite extensive. And uh, I thought we'd focus on that chart on the right because on this question of how long can it go and, and uh, how high can it go, uh, that chart shows the last bull markets. And um, in essence, we're up pretty dramatically, and, and to date it's actually a little bit more. Uh, it was 173 through, through year-end, so... so uh, 
about 178. But, uh, you know, here we are, 178%. And if you look at the chart, there are very few of them that have gone up more than that from the bottom. Uh, so that concerns me a little bit. Uh, again, will this continue on just like during the 1990s when we had that, uh, you know, continuation for quite some time? Well, I think one thing you also have to look at, you can't look at it in a vacuum and you have to, you know, mm -hmm. check the underlying economic um, fabric. And most of these coincided with a recession somewhere in there uh, mm -hmm. or a serious recessionary worry. And I just don't see a recession on the horizon anytime real soon. And that may okay. be, uh, you know, a favorable sign. Okay, excellent. So even though you know it, some of the signals might be there, it may not be time to worry yet. And obviously, as we go through the show, we'll talk about more of those signs. Now, one of the even though I, like I might add, I might add that I might add that a lot of a lot of Americans think we're in a recession or close to it. If you look at the uh, you know public opinion polls, but right. uh, the, the definition of two straight quarters of back-to-back uh, -back contraction in GDP, we're not we're not anywhere close to that right now. Okay, and as usual, the people, people that don't have a job at the moment are the ones that are more likely to be uh, feeling there's a recession. So uh, obviously your own personal situation does affect that. But uh, good point, good point. Now, economy clearly is important in this thing. And, and one of the things I like to, uh, I guess, somewhat jokingly add is that neither you, you nor I uh, are allowed to tell our listeners exactly what will happen in the next few years. We can only tell them about history uh, suggests. So uh, the rules well, I, that you and I can't predict. I'm allowed to. I, I'm not a licensed <laughs> financial planner or anything. I, you know, but the problem is I don't know. Like, I mean, I don't know what the, uh, the future will be like two years from now. And I'll, 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 I'll add the subscript, but that I don't think mm -hmm. anyone else does either. I mean, I don't sure. think anyone knows really the future course of, you know, what the markets and what the economies will do exactly. So I would, I would tell if I knew, but I don't. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's a fair point. Fair point. You get so many predictions, and actually, as we go through the show, we'll talk about as we just did some of the, you know, the concerns. But later, we get a little bit more optimistic as we talk about some of these topics. Let's have our listeners uh, uh, take a look at then the next slide, which is labeled 16, and one more view of this because. Um, now, let me step back for a second. I always say there are only two ways to invest. You can own or you can loan. And, and, and I, I recommend that most people do not reduce their owning investments, of course, equities being the best-known example. Uh, but to reduce those owning uh, investments below 50%, despite my concerns that I just shared, you know, the bull market's pretty long, uh, annual returns uh, in, in uh, equities, real estate, gold all have been uh, – positive more often in history than they've been negative. And based on, you know, this chart, which shows that, you know, huge number of years where the market is up versus the few that it's down, uh, would you agree with me that, you know, you should always stay in the market to some extent and uh, not jump into the, to the uh, uh, money markets just because things will seem a little gloomy? Well, as a as a, let me back up a second to say, of, sure. course, it, of course, it depends on your, your risk tolerance, uh, how much you can afford to lose, that sort of thing. But if you have a, you know, if you have a, some long-term uh, investment focus, meaning you, 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 you're, you're able to, you know, put away some money and, and let it ride for a while, I, I really do think that people uh, should have some stake in the stock market permanently, and you can move it up and down as, as you see fit. But I think where people make huge mistakes is shifting 100% in or 100% out uh, of, of the market. Um, having said that, I will say that uh, another thing regarding this chart is that it shows the really quite wide yearly variations in what the market yes. can do. It can be down 30 40% a year or up 40%, uh, 50% a year. What's interesting is that over time, the market has – the stock market has pretty much generated an average return, including dividends, of about 10% a year. And it's mm -hmm. when I started in the business in the 80s, that was about 10% a year. In the 90s, it might have fluctuated. I think it got up to maybe about 11% long-term average. But what's interesting Correct. is it's still in about that. It, the long-term average has been around in that 10 11% range. Yet, in any given year, the odds of being up 10% are almost zero. Right. I mean, right. the market never – the long-term average has been about 10, but it's, but it's bounced all over the place among that – I mean, among that – in that range. Mm -hmm. And as an investor, you just have to you, – you have to accept some of the bad with the good. And hopefully you'll realize or you'll start to recognize the, 
the big yearly losses as you know potential buying opportunities rather than a sign to head for the hills. Yeah, well said. Well, as a matter of fact, I was scanning the chart as you said that, and I don't see a single up year at ten percent. I see a couple down years at ten percent during that. It's uh, very that rare. It's very <laughs> rare. Like maybe one out of twenty years will be plus or minus up eight to twelve percent. You know, even even mm-hmm. within two or three percentage points, it just doesn't happen very often. Okay, let's talk about the Fed because obviously they've been in the news for a number of years, uh, and specifically their zero interest rate policy. Uh, some some of us refer to as ZERP. And let's have our listeners kind of switch to, to slide number seven, and, and especially the chart on the bottom right, because um, you know I think it it kind of shows what some of the effects have been. Uh, after the, the panic in 2008-2009, the Fed's been focused on, of course, lowering the interest rates. Everybody knows that, and that's the idea behind this ZERP. Uh, but it's also uh, driven the yields on loaning investments, like bonds, to very low levels. And that's the gray chart in that, in, in that uh, diagram. And despite the rising equity prices we've seen for these five years, the overall yield in equities, that green line, has actually been far higher which means it's good news for some and bad news for, for others. Let's talk about that. Who's benefited the most from these low interest rates? Well, I think you can look at it from, from several levels. From an economic standpoint, if you, if you, if you manage to keep your job um, over the last five years, I mean, I, I would right. say from that level, you certainly benefited. If your company has managed to stay in business, you've benefited. But from the, the investment standpoint, which I think is where you're question is directed. Um, clearly, clearly, savers have not done well. Uh, I mean, they have, they, have, they have been subjected to what might be considered a, a slow uh, Chinese torture death where, you know, the yields they earn on very safe investments have not been sufficient, really, to keep the pace with, you know, inflation and taxes. Um, and they have been, they have, they have suffered. Whereas on the, the other extreme, anyone in risky assets, stocks, real estate, after a while, uh, when it started to come back, they have done very well. And bond investors have, you know, have been somewhere in between. Um, and there have been some other areas. I mean, gold, gold has done weather, generally, generally mm-hmm. has done well over the last five, six years. But clearly, uh, risk takers have been, have been the one, if you're going to divide it into winners and losers, Risk takers, stock investors, real estate investors have done the best, clearly. Okay, and let me just add one more. The government, obviously, their borrowing costs have come way down, even though the, the deficit's up. They're actually borrowing costs are lower than they were five years ago. So I, I would say they have benefited from their own policies. Yes. Uh, let me put some words in your mouth, and, and, and I will. let's admit right up front that's unsanitary, so you can spit them back out. But this ZERP, uh, the Fed ZERP policy, has in essence punished savers and the poor people, and it's rewarded the government, borrowers, and, and, and risk takers, the investors, who are mostly more affluent people because they have the money to invest. Would that be an unfair summary? Um, I, think, uh, I think it's generally fairly close. I mean, I, I want to exactly put it that way, but I, I think uh, I would agree with you there. But let me, let me make a point here. <laughs> sure. You, you're making a distinction between wealthy people and stock market investors on the one hand and poor mm-hmm. people and savers on the other. Mm-hmm. But I would contend that there's nothing that you do not have to be upper income to be invested in the stock market. And uh, you, uh, it is one of the most democratic markets to get into. You can get into a stock in a you know a, a low cost mutual fund with a few hundred dollars or a couple thousand dollars. You can get into a, a, a start investing in dividend reinvestment plan. You can start in your 401k at work with that first paycheck. Mm-hmm. So it's I don't see the stock market as primarily catering to the wealthy people or you know as as a there's no there's no entrance uh, requirement to get into the stock market along those lines. Now yes. Wealthier people do have more money invested in the stock market, sure. and I really think that I really think that a lot of lower income people are, are missing the boat in this regard, um, because you do not have to be wealthy to be in the stock market. And I think there is, to your point, I think there is something of that misconception out there. 
Well said. I, I, I really, and we're, we're going to come back to that to some extent because uh, you know there's this natural feeling that I well I don't, I don't have any money or not much money, so I'm, you know I can't uh, invest in the stock market. But very very well said. So there's kind of a self fulfilling prophecy that I'm not putting money in the stock market and everybody else is benefiting, uh, but uh, that doesn't mean you couldn't have. Uh, so very very well said. And over the last you know over the last several years, to your point, I mean wealthy people have. The rich-poor gap has widened, and one of the reasons is that the wealthier individuals who have had stakes in stocks and real estate benefited when those markets recovered. But that doesn't mean that, you know, on the lower end, uh, lower income end, that you can't be involved too. I realize real estate's a little tougher because you do need a little bit higher sure. sums to get started there, but really, the stock market, you don't. And and, it, and I think that's a, a kind of a misconception out there. But it, to your point, I agree that the rich-poor divide has widened, and partly because of Federal Reserve policies that helped riskier assets, such as stocks and real estate. Great point. Let me remind our listeners you're tuned to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. look forward to you joining us every second and fourth Monday. If you missed some of the prior shows, you want to re-listen to them, we maintain an archive of shows on WealthDNA.us. If you'd like to get an email reminder of the shows, just send an email to me, ron at WealthDNA.us. We'll keep you posted about future shows and events. Now, a reminder, during the radio show, we welcome you, our uh, listeners, to ask questions. Easiest is the um, chat window in the below the radio player. You can call in. That number is at the top of the screen. Our topic today is the Bulls' fifth anniversary, which we're celebrating with Russ Wiles, the personal finance writer at the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Russ, let's talk a little bit about bonds. You mentioned a little bit, and obviously this chart touches on them some, uh, and they're the best-known example of loaning instruments. Uh, But to do that, what I'm going to suggest is we have our listeners switch to the next slide, which is labeled number 30 in the upper right. Uh, and that one uh, shows the bond interest rates, if you will, uh, over time and over a long period of time here, since there are very very few charts that would show bond prices, and there's some technical reasons behind that. So with that, let me just take a second to remind our listeners, if you think of a teeter-totter, on one side you have the bond prices, on the other side you have interest rates, then that's how it works. Interest rates coming down, as we saw for the last 30 years, means bond prices went up. As we see an uptick in interest rates, the bond prices go down. So, uh, Russ, overall, how have, if we take a look at this five-year period, how have bonds performed? Well, generally pretty good. But before I get into that, I just want to back up a sure. bit for just a second. Since we're in the area of fixed income in our in our last discussion just a couple minutes ago, Ron, um, yep. I was kind of beating up on uh, – well, not beating up, but I was, I, I was making this, the point that if you're a lower income, you don't have to have all your money in safe deposit-style accounts. Mm-hmm. Having mm-hmm. said that, there's a lot of Americans who don't even have that, and I do think it's important to have at least you know six months' worth of – savings or savings able to get you through six months or so um, in case of a job loss or something. And even a substantial number of Americans, a substantial number of lower income people can't even, don't even have that. So that's, I think, the first building block is you've got to have a little bit of safe money on the sideline. After that, you can start looking at things like more risky investment stocks and and even bonds. And to your question about bonds, I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, I do say bonds, and I would throw bond mutual funds in there because I think sure. that's probably the easiest way for most people to invest, particularly if you don't have a lot of a, a, a high degree, a really high portfolio. But the last five years, really the last 30 years, has been a pretty good period for bonds. And in fact, it's been a great period for bonds because interest rates, as you noted, have come down. I mean, I remember, I think the, the average... Uh, uh, mortgage in the early 80s was 11, 12 percent. Sure. Now, now you can get three and four percent. So interest rates clearly have come down over time. And in, and when interest rates come down, bond prices go up. And the the, the key question I think is where you're you're driving, Ron, is are we at sure. a, a point inflection point now where maybe that long-term trend starts to reverse? And I think there's a, a high likelihood of that eventually. Yes. 
Okay, and fair point. And uh, that chart shows a little bit of an uptick in interest rates. But, of course, you see them throughout the time period. They're ups and downs. But there seemed to be an uptick, obviously, in 2013. But let, let me have the listeners take a look at slide 32 and specifically the total return. We won't go through every one of those columns. But as we saw interest rates go up in 2013, uh, most bond investors, as that chart shows, had a negative return while the stock market was up 30%. Doesn't that drive people to do a knee-jerk reaction to say, oh, I better get out of bonds and, and uh, buy stocks instead? It might. And in fact, over the last year, we've started to see money, net money coming out of bond mutual funds and mm -hmm. net money going into stock funds, stock mutual funds for the first time in you know, that last six or seven years. And that, that's significant. Those numbers are, are, are compiled by the Investment Company Institute, which is the mutual fund, main mutual fund trade group. And it's actually something, it's a reliable statistic that shows to some degree investor preferences, stocks versus bonds. But yes, I mean, we are starting to see it. On the price side with bonds, interest rates are going to be most effective, or I should say interest rates are going to affect most longer-term bonds or longer-term bond funds. So on your chart, um, mm -hmm. you notice that the 30-year bond, the 30-year treasury bond, was most susceptible to uh, an uptick in interest rates, meaning it, it suffered the biggest price losses. Um, Shorter-term, medium-term bonds didn't, didn't get hit quite as bad. But, yeah, that's a risk out there now for bond investors. If interest rates gradually start pushing higher, it's going to erode into their returns and, and might even subject them to actual losses even after they include the interest that they earned on the bonds. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, you just you just mentioned as as you said you know that we've seen that trend of people shifting back into stocks. But you know, when I when I look at the first commandment of investing, which is to uh, buy low and sell high, that violates that commandment since we're in essence people, those people are selling bonds which are now a lower price than they were uh, rather than selling them a year ago, and they're buying stocks which are at record highs. So that's kind of violating the commandment, and yet people are doing it. Well, I would say this. Over the one year, it violates it. But if you look at the bonds, the bond market rally that's extended 10, 20, 30 years, they still done very well. I mean, most sure. bond investors are still up. So in that sense, I don't think they're really, you know, selling at the bottom. And the other thing I think you have to keep in mind is for most people, I really think of some, something of a balanced portfolio makes sense. You don't want to be swinging entirely out of stocks, I mean, entirely into stocks and out of bonds. Bonds do provide some cushion. Even in a, a tough year like 2013 for the bond market, the losses were mostly single digit, whereas a bad year in the stock market, the losses are going to be 30 40%. So bonds, even when they're losing money, they don't lose nearly as much as stocks do. So and I, I just think that most people kind of need some bond cushion in their portfolio. But to your point, Ron, I, I, I would say that you don't, you, you don't really want long-term bonds, a lot right. of long-term bonds in your portfolio right now. The shorter-term maturities, you're going to be earning lower yields, but you know, the, the safety, the, the, the stability um, is going to be better for you. I always like having you on because you remind us of those fundamentals and keep our keep all our listeners focused on those. Um, I'll, I'll pick on some of the people that did indeed been moving in the, just the last year. We've been saying on this show for two to three years would be a good time to, to shift uh, out of bonds uh, because we we know that that's going to happen. So um, you know it's 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 a matter of, of yes, you're right. It's better to have shifted in 2013 than never at all. Uh, but at the same time, maybe earlier would have been better. But, you know, if I were a novice investor and I were looking looking at only the five-year perspective, uh, and I looked at the chart that we saw at the beginning, but only looked at that five years that, you know, the stock market's always gone up, these little minor dips every once in a while, whereas bonds, I've seen them going up for, let's say, four of those five years, and all of a sudden they went down, I had a, you know, have a loss, um, seems that bonds are more volatile and therefore riskier. Uh, what would you tell those novice investors? You're saying bonds are more volatile? I would say stocks are Correct. Well, but see, when you look at the charts, uh, oh, I, you know, I have a loss. I have a loss in one year, whereas in the stocks, I've never had a loss for the last five years. So, on theory, you know, again, it okay. kind of looks like, um, you know, if you look at that short perspective, uh, obviously, as, you know, that's part of the problem. But, uh, you know, is that one of the risks in, in you know, novice investors run into as they look at uh, the wrong data? 
I don't think so because I just do not think the most people out there are really feeling very uh, amenable to risk. I, I think that most investors, if they're even looking at these five-year charts, probably recognize that they're part of a larger story where stocks have had some substantial losses over time. In other words, I guess what I'm saying is I still think that the, the public out there is pretty risk-averse when it comes to the stock market and the, uh, the five-year uptrend for the stock market probably isn't uh, convincing a lot of those people. Uh, for example, I mean, the, the uh, Chicago, uh, University of Chicago and, and uh, um, Northwestern University do a, a quarterly polling uh, mm-hmm. asking people what they think about various areas of the financial markets. Um, banks, as much problems as bad reputation banks have had in recent years, the public views them twice as favorably as they view the stock market, which is at the bottom. Uh, I, I just well, think there's a lot of distrust and concern and anxiety towards the stock market still uh, among the, the, the American public, and I don't, I don't think a, a five-year chart is really going to dissuade that. And I will say another thing, Ron, as you know, that sure. when you're – those charts, you know, those long-term charts, it is true. The stock market, we can say right now, has always gone up. Because right now we're we're basically at a you know all time high, but when you're living through the the dips along the way that right. in retrospect look kind of minor, believe me, drops like 1987 or 2002 and uh, 20, 2008 weren't so minor at the time. I mean they really were you know white knuckle rides lower and it, they were scary. And, yeah, truly gut wrenching. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, gut wrenching. And when you you know. Over time, the charts kind of tend to smooth that out, but there are, the stock market can deliver some really pain, some real pain, and uh, uh, when you're in the middle of it, you, you recognize that. <laughs> yeah, especially if you need to cash some of it out, or if you uh, do do it, at the, even though you didn't need to. <laughs> as, Absolutely. Uh, uh, your your friend at the at the uh, paper had done. Uh, let's move to slide 41, and I want to kind of switch to a slight, you know, a couple strategy ideas here. This is for the EFA, the it's European, Australian, Far, Far East. Basically, it's a global developed markets, uh, same format as we had the first slide. So, you know, the time scale and, and essentially the the um, scaling looks the same. Uh, for the S&P that we looked at at the very beginning. But the U.S. equity market has been up about 178%, as we mentioned, over the last 12 months. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, in the last five years. In the last 12 months, we have 51 new highs, okay? But if we look at these global markets, and again, these are the developed markets, they're far below their uh, their all-time highs. uh, And we could even say that the IFA index is only up, let's say, for the five years, about 90%. Only, 90% isn't bad, uh, I should add. But, you know, would this be an idea to reallocate some of that stock money into the global markets? Yes, I totally agree with you, Ron. I, I do think it is um, a good opportunity. Not only are foreign mar- markets generally trading at much lower valuations um, and thus could be a good buy relative to the U.S. stock market, but I think you want everyone, I think, should, pretty much everyone, uh, should have some foreign exposure just um, you know, for the interests of diversification and balance. I mean, the U.S. stock market is still the world's biggest, most liquid. U.S. economy is still number one, but you know, we're not the, the only game in town. And I, I think that you can see, uh, for example, uh, potential for a rebound in places like Europe, potential for higher long-term growth in some of these uh, uh, developing markets. And I just don't think you really want all your eggs in the U.S. basket. I mean, not, it's really not only a case of better valuations abroad, but, but prudence in the sense that you want to diversify a little bit more broadly. And that includes diversifying a bit against the U.S. dollars, and uh, that's what you do when you're you're going overseas. And I would recommend, you know, if you're going that route, stick with a, a mutual fund type of uh, right. um, format rather than trying to buy individual stocks. Um, and the mutual funds can can do it quite, um, I think, uh, inexpensively for the most part. Well said. So you, you don't want people to go out and try to pick the best Russian stocks uh, to invest in. Well, you could. I mean, uh, <laughs> you, you could certainly buy some big, uh, big name European companies and Japanese, and maybe you even a few, uh, uh, you know, stocks in China. But I, 
you're not on the, on the ground over there. You're really not an expert in these areas. And I just think uh, a, a mutual fund or an ETF, for the most part, um, um, is the way to go. Particularly since you want to diversify, you can get instant diversification with one two thousand or five thousand or ten thousand dollar investment with a mutual fund or an ETF. Trying to do that with individual stocks, you'd need at least probably a dozen for any semblance of diversification, and you know it just gets much more expensive. Okay. Let me use one more slide to emphasize your point, and that's the very next slide, uh, mark number 40 in the upper right. It's the global equity markets. The returns to return to their prior prior peaks. And when you look at that chart, uh, as you said, you know, they have some room to go versus where, where their peaks were. But uh, that's a big range. We see, you know, from, from 10% up to even 180% on, on Italy rise to get back to where they were um, uh, you know, over their, their past peaks. So it would seem that, as you said, a mutual fund, let's say one that, it, that uses an index like this one or maybe even a broader index, would be a good way to reallocate some funds. And, um, you know, those markets all, to me, look pretty good. I don't know about you. Do you see any of those markets that you, you would want to stay away from completely? Or would a good diversified mutual fund of those globals be a good idea? I wouldn't know. I don't really know enough of every company's specifics. I mean, you can make an sure. argument, but because we are novices, well, in the sense that we're not full-time foreign stock investors, um, we right. probably could be missing some signals. But two, I wanted to make a quick comment on something you said earlier. I mean, you, you, sure. you've been talking about, first of all, one comment is that mm-hmm. the foreign market, the foreign stock exposure would be on the aggressive side of your overall stock exposure. So you're not going to be taking bond money into, and moving it into you know, yes, emerging markets funds, you'd be taking some of your U.S. stock portfolio, which I think you were alluding to, Ron, and maybe... Yeah, I, I, yeah, I was, but... Good, yeah, good and maybe rebalancing a little bit into the foreign markets. Um, you had also, Ron, made the comment, is the U.S. stock market getting old, getting long mm-hmm. too? Mm-hmm. Yes, sure, I think sure, you that's could, I think you can make that statement, but at the, on the other hand, one sign would be a lot of frothiness, a lot of real excitement, a lot of huge gains in the foreign markets... And we're not seeing that. So that's mm-hmm. why I think I, – I still think there might be, you know, a ways to go for overall equity investors because we're not seeing a lot of a stampede in the, in, in the foreign markets, particularly the emerging markets. If, if anything, I think people investor, – U.S. investors have been retrenching from those areas lately. So uh, that would be another sign in my mind uh, as to, if, if, as to you know, an indication of whether the – the U.S. stock market might be at a tipping point. If, if we're seeing a flood of an excitement, enthusiasm, et cetera, cash flows going into these foreign markets, particularly the, the riskier emerging markets, and I just don't see it right now. Okay, perfect, perfect point. Um, with that, let's move to the housing market. And I've got this, the next slide is slide number 20, which is a great, a great title, The Aftermath of the Housing Bubble. And I'm not going to try to go through all of the pieces here, but the chart on the left gives us kind of a summary across the U.S. of the 20 biggest cities. Uh, that, that 20 city index is, is commonly used as a, as a benchmark. But if we look at that orange line, we are just at the point of housing prices being where they were in 2004, 10 years ago. What are your thoughts about reallocating some money into real estate at this point? Because it's, again, far from its peak. It's 10 years back. It's nowhere near uh, either high, you know, high levels or halfway up to peaks, uh, as we saw in, uh, in the EFA index. Uh, what are your thoughts there? I like real estate. I mean, as, as, a, as, as part of a balanced portfolio, I think mm-hmm. the mistake most people think is that they have one, they own one house, and they think that they're broadly diversified right. in real estate. Or in reality, mm-hmm. they have one little mm-hmm. piece of pro- land in one market of one type, residential. Right. Um, so you can make the argument that to be really diversified in real estate, you need to get some sort of a, a fund or, or, or invest in some home builders or, you know, commercial mm-hmm. properties, whatever. Um, so obviously that takes some some money, uh, but assuming you have um, you know the money to work with, I I I I think real estate is a certainly a uh, uh, an important part of what could be an overall um, you know well well built portfolio. Okay. And the timing of it now, I think, to your question, is real estate a good value now? I mean, I, yeah, I, generally speaking, not, it wasn't. It's not as good as it was three years ago in terms of sure. value, but uh, I still think there's a, a potential there. Sure. 
Yeah, and while, while we're on this chart, just for a second, we don't have enough time to dig into all of the aspects in the next few charts, but on the upper right is the affordability index. Uh, as you saw a little while back, it was even more affordable because housing prices were even lower and interest rates were you know, a touch lower, not, not any big difference. But on affordability, we are essentially at record levels. Over the last uh, eons, and this chart goes back to 76, but affordability has never been better. So you would think that uh, more and more people would be jumping in, but I think it gets back to your enthusiasm. Consumers just are not real sure that uh, things are okay. Yeah, and the and your point, Ron, is well taken. Housing affordability is very high, and it's primarily high because interest rates are so low. I mean, mortgage rates, gosh, are a third of the level of 25 years ago. It's crazy, although I will say that they're back to about the level that um, my parents got their first mortgage at. I mean, it's funny how these things go in cycles, but uh, in the 50s, 60s, early 60s, you could get a mortgage at a low single, mid-single digit rate. Then they mm-hmm. shot up to double, low double-digit rates, and now we're back right. to the low, low mid-single-digit rates. But that is what you know, really is driving the affordability is, um, to a large part, part is the, uh, the decrease in uh, mortgage uh, interest rates. Okay. Before we continue, for those listeners just tuned in, you're listening to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. You can listen to the earlier portion on the archive. If you missed prior shows, you can also find them on that archive, wealthdna.us. Today, our guest is Russ Wiles. He's the personal finance writer at the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. The topic today is the Bulls' fifth anniversary, and we are wishing all of you a happy anniversary. Russ, let's go back to the near-jerk reaction talked about earlier and and, and you had actually touched on it. We happen to have a slide here. So let's bring that up. It'll be a couple slides in. It is uh, labeled number 61. Uh, so that one's mutual fund flows. Uh, and we're going to use the bottom part. and We won't go through that whole table of numbers there. But uh, it, it emphasizes what you said earlier. While uh, bond prices were starting to tick down, all of a sudden we start seeing inflows into stocks. Uh, again, is that maybe an indication that uh, people avoid equities when they're cheap and start buying when they're expensive? Yes, it is. I think it is an indication, and it's it's something. It's a it's a worrisome sign in in my mind. However, having said that, um, because and the reason it's worrisome is that there's there's been quite a bit of uh, evidence that the pub, the general public does mistime mistime their moves uh, at the extremes. Uh, a good example, of course, is these uh, these mutual fund cash flows, which people, you know, 2008, 2009, 2010, 2011, 2012, they were still putting more net cash into bonds, where whereas the stock market has already started to take off its, with this recovery. So yes, that has changed now. The last year or so, more money has net, more net money, I should say, has been flowing yes. into stocks than bonds. That is something to watch. That is a concern. Um, I guess the reason I'm not overly worried at the moment is that sometimes these trends can, can last four or five years before. Exactly. You know, yeah. And um, so, but, but to your point, Ron, yeah, it's, it's something to watch. It's, it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's a potential uh, canary in the coal mine. We'll see how that plays out. Oh, I like that phrase. I like that phrase. But you know, the, to, to your point, all of that money that's in the bond funds, as people get more and more scared, assuming interest rates, and they ticked up again last week, uh, still below where their their their, their uh, recent uh, highs. But uh, with that, as people do move, that that's a lot of money from the bond market that could flow into stocks. So as you said, and I think it's it's well said, the the fact that we're doing the wrong thing, that wrong thing could be continued for another five years. And so equities could continue to perform very well. Yeah, I, re- I really think the stock market, for the most part, is more like a uh, an aircraft carrier than a yacht. It, it takes a while to move around, to change course. It's going to typically stay in a general trend for a while, but, you know, eventually that'll change, and uh, <laughs> it'll be going the wrong direction. Correct. Okay. Let's look at a couple more optimistic signals. We started a little bit, on, at least I, I did, on my you know concerns. Uh, but let's switch to slide number 21 on consumer finances. Uh, and I'll, I think we'll touch on mostly the uh, chart of the, the upper right. There's a lot of information on each of these slides as well. But if we look at household debt, debt service, that is a huge decrease and actually far below where we've been for the last uh, 30, 40 years. 
uh, in, in terms of debt service. So to me, that seems optimistic and that now people should have a lot more money to live as opposed to money to just pay interest. Yeah, for and I think there's a variety of reasons why consumers have been um, able to rebuild their balance sheets. On the one hand, uh, the more pessimistic outlook is that a lot of people had their, you know, went through bankruptcy or they had their, had some right. debts stripped off that way, or they had their homes foreclosed on, so they no longer have those uh, debts out there. But at the same time, uh, I, I generally think. For the most part, people have been trying to get their debts under control. You've seen uh, a, a, a huge declines both nationally and in Arizona for like really for like the last three years, steadily decreases in, in, in bankruptcies as a, as a sign. There are other indicators. Um, so yeah, I, I do think that's that's favorable, to, uh, and I, I think it's healthy too that that people are you know living within their means more. Correct. I think that is the silver lining I usually talk about with recessions. It gets people to get back to what they should have been thinking all along. Uh, they get overly optimistic during the, the good times. Uh, let me switch to slide 28, again, up in the upper right-hand corner, slide 28, uh, which is another one that gives me some optimism. and it, it, it verifies or it kind of shows some numbers around the point you just mentioned, what well, you mentioned just a little while ago, which is we don't have that... Uh, you know, huge uh, uh, optimism and euphoria out there. Because if we look at, you know, prior recoveries, the, the consumer sentiment is relatively low at this period. It's below average versus other times when, you know, markets were peaking and everything was going great. Those numbers were much, much higher. So it does appear, as you said, there's not so much euphoria, and that should be a very good sign for us. Yes. And this is anecdotal. I mean, I really it's it's hard mm -hmm. to measure precisely, but I just don't get a sense that anybody man on the street person out there is really excited about the stock market right now. I mean, mm -hmm. the point that we're doing this anniversary of the 5-year bull market and I just don't I just don't see it. I don't sense a lot of you know, irrational enthusiasm out there on the stock market, which is a good sign because it means that exactly. people haven't been climbing on board and they have perhaps some uh some some cash to invest if they decide to down the road. Ah, that brings us to our to our very last slide that we'll cover today, which is uh, number sixty six, uh, which exactly emphasizes uh, the the point you just touched on. If we look at there's two pieces of the top chart just basically says what we talked about much earlier, which is anybody that has money they're they're just kind of parking in six month CDs or, or even worse in cash or money markets they're earning nothing. So that, that yep. we we talked about that earlier, but the bottom chart shows the percentage of cash in people's assets. So it really doesn't matter the fact that you know there are there's more money around today than there was 30 or 40 years ago. These are percentage. The percentage in cash is is high, which could be another very optimistic signal is people who have money on the sidelines that they could indeed put into uh, financial uh, investments. Absolutely. When you're earning 1% on a, on a bank CD and, and your friend is earning 26% on a very mainstream mutual fund, which was the case last year, um, it, right. it, it gets you thinking, well, maybe I should dip a toe in the, in the, in the stock market waters. So we'll see what that, whether that happens. Um, but you're right. It does provide some potential for uh, future uh, buying power for the market down the road. But I don't know. Now, in the next case, emphasize that point where you said dip your toe into the market. That's, I think, the right philosophy when, when we are uh, at higher levels to not then say, okay, I'm moving everything uh, into the stock market at this point because it may be the wrong timing. Uh, we don't expect that uh, as, as, as our conversation goes. But uh, at the same time, you want to do things gradually, not 100% in, 100% out, as you had mentioned earlier. So very, very I think you have point. to. I, th I think people feel a psychological need to do take some action action when the market's moving sharply one way or the other. I would just say do it in small increments. You're still going to feel like you're doing something, but you're not going to be shooting yourself in the foot if indeed you pull out or jump in at precisely the wrong moment. Yep. Let's try to pull some of these very topics together. Uh, if investors were kind of following the, the, the advice of reallocating among asset, asset classes for these last five years, they would have had some pretty good and, and, and stable returns, but they would have missed this big run-up because they would have moved some of their money during that, that run-up into bonds, opposite of what we saw, or they might have been moving them into um, 
uh, foreign markets or into real estate. So therefore, they would have missed some of the big, uh, the big moves. And they might have ended up a little bit low in their, or a little bit too heavy in their bond uh, investments in 2013. So if I look at that, is that the kind of experience that then gets people back to that knee-jerk reaction as, as well? Hell, asset allocation doesn't work. I'm going to abandon it, and I'm going to go after the, the the big markets. I don't know. I don't know exactly how people regard it. I do mm-hmm. personally think that asset allocation is very a very valuable strategy, and really probably the one that most people should build their financial future around. I mean, when you diversify, you almost definition by definition are going to be giving up some gains at the top, but you're not right. going to be subjecting yourself to all the damage and pain at the bottom. So it's a give and take. It's almost, it is a compromise strategy. There's no question about it. But I, I do think it's a strategy that an approach that people can utilize successfully for the long term, almost regardless of the type of investor you are. Right, and I, I think that's that's kind of what I was getting at. Is, is sometimes people will drift away from it because of it didn't do as well as somebody else did with with a single investment, uh, but it's giving them much better long term returns, uh, and it is. Uh, that said, could asset allocation actually cause people problems if indeed the interest rates reverse? And let's say we see the next uh, five, ten, or maybe thirty year trend of of uh, interest rates heading up. Uh, could asset allocation hurt those people by moving them? Uh, you know, out of out of bonds which are earning more and more each year, and and moving them into stocks which could be going down. I mean, it, could could it be an in, you know the interest rate environment might change some of those rules? Well, a lot of things could change the rules a little bit. I don't I don't think they're going to undermine the the general approach to asset allocation, which I think is pretty 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 well uh, established. Um, as for rising interest rates, which was part of your question, um, sure. if rates do rise long term, that your bond investments are going to have a drag. They're, they're going to be dragging, dragging you down. The stock side of the thing is interesting because I think that generally stocks can do okay in a, in a rising interest rate environment so long as the, the movements are so, aren't so sharp that you know, it, it, it pushes the economy into recession uh, all the time. So, but, I, but I generally do think that in a, in a moderate environment of moderately higher interest rates and inflation, uh, stock, stocks can do okay, and, and bonds, I guess, can do all right, but if those pressures are there, bonds are going to be, you know, are going to be uh, having some problems. Uh, they're going to be fighting the trend, so to speak. Okay. And let's go to that phrase, and you start to, to, to um, um, say it to some extent. Uh, some people are probably telling you, yes, but that's, that's all great, but this time is different. How, how do you react when somebody says this time is different? Well, I guess uh, the key is to, 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 to determine what, they're, what variable they're talking about. It, it became kind of a classic um, phrase around late 90s when the market was going straight up because of the Internet. <laughs> and they said this time is different. And actually, right. the Internet did really create some substantially sure. improvements, but I think prices got way ahead of themselves. Currently, what is the, the, the variable that's different this time? I'm yep. not sure I really uh, identify many negatives. And as a positive that we haven't talked about, it's the okay. increased energy independence of this country because of the unlocking of all these uh, uh, hydrocarbons in North Dakota and such. And that's something we didn't talk about, but I think that could give um, – I'm not going to say it's dif- different this time, but it, I think it could give a, a favorable uh, tailwind to the, the economy for quite some time. Well, so, no, that is definitely a change from where we've been because of anything we've become increasingly in, you know, dependent on other countries over the years. So uh, that, that shift is happening. Uh, well said. Uh, and again, I wish we could cover all of the aspects of, of the market, but uh, a very, very good one that you added. Let's remind our listeners, how do they contact you? How do they find out uh, what articles you are writing and have written? Well, probably the easiest way is just to log on to azcentral.com, which you can log on anywhere. In the money section, that's where we, where we run most of our uh, uh, financial stories. Uh, I have a blog, uh, sorry, Twitter account, AZ Money News, and I tend to get on that just, you know, a few times a day if possible. And uh, email is also a possibility, russ.wiles, W-I-L-E-S, at Arizona Republic, all spelled out, dot .com, and all I do is... Uh, do my best to, to answer your questions. Okay. Uh, you've touched on one, but 
we've covered a lot of uh, you know of facets, and you've added one more uh, in this you know historic fifth anniversary. What comments would you like to emphasize or add before we close today? Well, I think since we are talking about the the anniversary, I think the, the key one is you you wanted to be in it to some degree over the last five years, and and to do that, I mean, you just have to have some faith in the stock market that you know things will eventually reverse and get better. At least I'm talking about how it, how it feel, felt five mm-hmm. years ago. You don't want Absolutely. to put all your – most people can't afford psychologically or even financially to, to keep all their money in stocks. But to your point earlier, Ron, I don't think you want to abandon them um, ever, uh, uh, and particularly when things look the worst because that's sometimes the best buying opportunity. Exactly. Well said. Really appreciate your being on with us. As usual, some great advice in there. I think we've covered, I think these charts help kind of support and people have a chance to go back and, and, and review some of the things and, and re-listen to the show and kind of uh, after studying the charts. So hopefully uh, we've left them with some, some food for thought. But the energy independence definitely a topic I would uh, add. It may be a topic we do a whole show on in the future because I think it is going to have some ramifications for uh, for investors. Thank you, Ron. All right, my pleasure. Well, let me just sum up here a little bit with Russ Wiles' help. I sure hope we've put you in a mood to celebrate. The uh, last five years have been very profitable for investors everywhere. Whether you were investing in U.S. equities or among the best, every investor essentially made money, regardless of whether you invested global equities, bonds, real estate, precious metals, or almost any other commodity. If you're not in a good mood today, I have a feeling it means you had too large of a portion of your portfolio in cash or bank CDs for the last five years. Now, unfortunately, and to our credit, on this show, we've never suggested that is a good strategy. As we discussed today, it's savers and people with no investments, uh, true investments, and you know, parking it in cash is not an investment. Uh, those people are the ones left behind. Government policies around the world have led to low interest rates and a flight to higher risk, higher return assets. In other words, if you tried to play it safe, you lost. Now, certainly taxes and inflation have eaten away anything you earned on your cash or on your CDs. I won't try to summarize all the topics we covered on this show. I think it would be better better use your time to to look through the charts and then re-listen the entire show again, especially those topics of interest to you. The link in the announcement will take you back to the archive version. And, of course, you can always get the full list of past shows on WealthDNA.us. I would, however, like to emphasize the theme and the sequence of our show today, which wasn't obvious. I didn't tell you that ahead of time. But as we went through these specific topics, you may have focused on the topics and missed that overall theme. We started with historic returns, which would indicate the next few years could be less favorable or maybe even far worse than the last five years just because it's been a good long five years and not many equity markets last more than five years. And very few have cumulative returns that are higher than we've had to date in this bull market. There are also clear signs the 30-year bull market in bonds has ended. Now, as we progress through the show, we covered a number of potentially profitable uh, strategies and some optimistic signs. The global equity markets still have far to go to reach their peaks, and maybe allocating some of your ownership investments into those might be wise. Likewise, real estate could continue to rise dramatically in price before there's any danger of being in bubble territory. Ignore what the... Uh, some of the media are telling you. Listen to folks like Russ Wiles. Consumers and investors are still far from euphoric, which is always a great sign, which means we may have quite some time before the equity markets peak. There's also a great deal of cash on the sidelines. And we didn't have enough time to cover all the ramifications of the bank's reluctance to lend for the last six years. So I would encourage you to go back to some of those charts, charts 20, 34, and 33, And feel free to contact Russ Wiles, myself, with comments or questions around those topics. But there could be some real big optimistic signs with the amount of money that's sitting in the banks. Now, neither Russ or I are allowed to tell you exactly where the financial markets are going to go for the next few years, or as he humbly added, he doesn't know, and I don't either. But I can safely predict that during the next five years that one of the best investments to increase your wealth By the way, feel free to share this hot tip. That investment is taking two hours each month to listen to the Wealth DNA radio show. We share the investment fundamentals, 
some great ideas and help diversify and grow your portfolio. And yes, we occasionally take a break to look back, reflect, and celebrate. Now, our next show, we'll be discussing Forex trading with Kiana Daniel, the author of Invest Diva's Guide to Making Money in Forex. So get your foreign currency questions together, whether business-related or personal, and let the Forex Diva help you with strategy suggestions. And we just touched on Forex a little bit today with the whole idea of diversifying in foreign markets. The Wealth DNA Radio Show will be the fourth the next one will be the fourth Monday of uh, March, and that's March 4th, 9 a.m. Arizona. Same place and same time, at least if you live in the U.S. or Europe. No guarantees from us if other countries are changing their time in the meantime. We also have a lineup of guests and topics on WealthDNA.us, and there you'll find the archive of past shows. If you have questions or comments, if you haven't received my emails reminding you of the show, send me an email, ron at WealthDNA.us. We'll keep you posted about future shows and events as well. Happy fifth anniversary and happy investing. And we're not hearing the closing music here, Pete. Don't know if you noticed, but the music did not kick on. So I don't know if we're still on the air or not, but uh, Pete, we are not getting the uh, closing music. Maybe Pete was having so much fun listening and taking notes, he just kind of decided to uh, want us to keep going. But unfortunately, we are done for today's show. If we are still live, uh, you will be hearing some closing music here very shortly. Uh, but it may be that, indeed, the show was, was cut off and the closing music never played. But we will find out shortly. Thanks, Pete.